for me, I think to be able to see beyond somebody's belief, to see their humanity, it just it just makes sense to me. And we can connect with people even when they don't agree with us. It is not as easy. And we don't have to do it all the time with everyone. And somebody who has been attacked is not responsible for fixing the world. But we can more collectively, I think, do a better job in having these conversations. Welcome back to the Growth Equation Podcast, or if you're new, welcome to the Growth Equation Podcast. I'm your host today, Brad Stahlberg. Steve is out on paternity leave celebrating his baby girl, Hazley Grace. I am joined again by Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a clinical psychologist and also a research psychologist with an expertise in marriage and family therapy. And this is part two of our conversation on all things relationships. So if you missed last week's, I highly recommend that you listen to it. Whether you want to hit pause on this and go listen to that one first or come back to it after, it doesn't really matter. The two episodes are entangled at the hip. So welcome back, Yael, and thanks for making the time to continue this conversation. I'm always happy to make time to chat with you, Brad. I'm always delighted with the opportunity. All right. So last week, we spent a lot of time focusing on intimate partnerships, husband, wife, husband, husband, wife, wife, everything in between, but people who share a home and perhaps share a family. Today, I want to talk less about intimate partnerships and more about other forms of relationships. And in particular, it feels like we are in a moment culturally in many workplaces where two things are true at the same time that are very hard for me to wrap my head around, or at least wrap my head around how to deal with these two things. So on the one hand, I feel like we're in an environment where people are significantly less likely to engage with and listen to people who disagree with them and really hear people who disagree with them. And I don't think that is good. On the other hand, I think we're also in an environment where more people's values are so diametrically opposed that it probably doesn't make sense to listen to someone that disagrees with you and perhaps doesn't make sense to be in relationship with someone who disagrees with you. So how do we square, how do you think about squaring the need to be in constructive dialogue and to open yourself up to other people's perspectives while at the same time drawing a certain boundary and says, no, I am not engaging with this person because They live in such a different universe than me on their view of what is quote unquote fact and reality and or their values. So I, I probably lean a little more extreme on that. I think that there's value in listening to somebody, even if they live in a totally different orbit than you do. And the question brings to mind this really fascinating book that I read in a conversation that I had on Psychologist Off the Clock with the author Victoria Shepard. And the book was called A History of Delusions. And this wasn't so much the content of her book, but somehow throughout our conversation, we landed in this place where both of us realized that the history of delusions and the modern practice of clinical psychology both kind of suggest that there's value in listening to somebody even if they really are cognitively living in a totally different world. And the reason is because sometimes 
inside of a delusion, like a full-on psychiatric delusion, you can find a nugget of truth or a nugget of connection. And so I think when you can listen for that nugget of connection, there is value, but it requires you to be open, to be receptive, to be willing to see the world from somebody else's point of view, even if it seems completely bonkers to you even if it seems completely vile to you. And I think what is helpful in that, what I find helpful, and I think what the research shows is helpful, is recognizing that you don't have to buy into it. You can just be curious about it. You don't have to let it overtake your belief system, but you can genuinely be curious about how somebody arrived in such a different place than you are in. Does that make sense? Unless I misheard you, did you say a negative truth or a negative connection? No, a nugget of connection. So like a small piece of where we can connect as human beings. So most people can probably tell from my name, I have an Israeli heritage. And so I always think that the research on Palestinian versus Israeli conflict is really telling. And yes, there is a super complicated history and ongoing present that I'm not even going to dive into. But what research shows is that when you get people from opposing sides with this history of really painful like, you know, long-standing conflict, and you get them to connect on a human level about things that are unrelated to the conflict and related to politics, that people can develop connections and that connection can help them be more compassionate towards one another, even in the areas where they don't see eye to eye. And that I think is really, really powerful. Another great book that I recently read is Amanda Ripley's book. It's called High Conflict. And it kind of speaks to this too, this opportunity that we can have to meet with people who we're diametrically opposed to, who we find really um, hard to take, really aversive to be around. And if you can sort of get to that human piece underneath it, and sometimes it's a, it requires us to connect around something that has nothing to do with the topics that we disagree around. I'll add something else too, which is that I I do think that when you get into a place where you're feeling so attacked or sort of, you know, on a, in a defensive position, because something that somebody is saying is so offensive to you, that is a good cue to take a timeout. And for some people, it's like a permanent timeout. But I think if you can re-engage that curiosity and do a time back in with curiosity in hand, that that can often be really productive in terms of the connecting piece. I'm curious if you think about um, any specific limits to that. So what comes to mind is um, it feels like a lot of work for someone that, let's say, is gay or a lesbian or transgender to sit there and try to connect with someone that is ardently opposed to their ability to marry and have equal rights in this country. Would you like, how do you think about that? Because I think that's the most common, um, would be the most common objection to what you just said, which is at what point, and I know you're not binary, like you should do it or you shouldn't, but at what point does it make sense to be like, you know, like, it's just not, it's not my problem to solve that this person is living in a different reality. Oh, a hundred percent. I think that is a question that everybody has to answer for themselves. That is going to depend on the context. And it, I mean, maybe it depends a little bit on your values and a little bit on your goals, both, which is, you know, if somebody, you know, if you are in the position where you're talking to somebody whose beliefs are offensive to you, that take away your individual liberties that, you know, are are harmful in some way, there, there could be value in listening and connecting because there is opportunity to, to 
for you to grow and understand and for them to develop some compassion, right? If you sort of stick with it long enough, that there is the possibility, if you're patient and open and curious, there's a far greater possibility for them to open up to your view and to your humanity. And, and that's obviously positive, but that's not a done deal. That's not a guarantee. And so you have to decide if you want to tolerate it, given that the outcome is uncertain and if it's worth it to you. And oftentimes it isn't. I mean, I, I talk about this with my kids all the time, that if there's somebody who is, um, you know, unkind, they're probably being unkind because they're hurting. And my kids don't need to be everybody's savior. I think that they should be kind, but they can also choose to walk away. They don't have to stick their neck out for everybody. And it really is a nuanced choice that doesn't have a right or wrong answer, but it depends a lot on what you're willing to tolerate in the service of your values and in the service of trying to move toward a goal of trying to have a more connected society. Have you ever seen this work on the internet or does this have to happen in person? I've read about it working on the internet. I'm trying to think of the book where I read. I read about this story, um, and I I cannot for the life of me remember um, what book I read it in. It might have been one of Scott Barry Kaufman's, but I, I'm not sure. Um, but of you know somebody who was trolling uh, somebody who, a, a a poster I think on Twitter who was talking about um, gay right gay rights marriage and the person who posted, who who got trolled, sort of responded really empathically, really compassionately, like, oh, interesting, Why, where is that coming from? And it started this ongoing dialogue. And ultimately, the person who was posting in response to the initial tweet um, softened a bit. So, you know, that's a story I read about in a book. I'm probably not the type to follow the really vile Twitter responses because I, I just, I don't want to go there. And so that's a choice that I make because that doesn't feel productive to me. Um, but I think that there are cases, it is probably few and far between, but I'm curious, have you ever had an experience where somebody has said something vile to you? Cause you get a lot of responses and have you ever sort of gone with an exchange and seen it go somewhere or does it feel like it's just ugly and needs to be stopped? I think that it goes somewhere maybe three to 5% of the time. And unfortunately I take the bait enough that I have a large enough sample size. <laughs> um, yeah, it feels like maybe between one out of 30 and one out of 20 times it goes mm -hmm. somewhere, but other times it just, um, it just degrades into uh, like pretty vitriolic responses. And, and that's when I disengage. Cause I, I think a lot of these issues that divide us are either extremely nuanced and there's just not much room for nuance on internet forums and social media platforms, or there is absolutely no nuance. And, you know, someone that thinks that citizens should have access to military grade weapons, like to me, that's just, that is pretty binary. Like, I don't, maybe you're scared. Maybe you have a history of being scared, but like, I, I just have very little sympathy for that argument. And maybe I'm too stubborn <laughs> on something like that. Um, so yeah, I think that the issues that can have productive discourse tend to have enough nuance where it's best to happen offline. And then I think a lot of the issues online tend to be around pretty, pretty black and, and white. It would be interesting though. And I'm, I, I'm I mean, I can give you, I, I, yeah, no, I can give you, a, let me give you like a list because I'm, I'm happy for you to tell me all the ways in which I'm wrong. So like the things that I find really hard to engage. I don't want to tell you that you're wrong. Just to, just to throw that in there, but yes, are, um, gun control, but in, in particular in relation to, um, 
automatic rifles, like military grade weapons. I, I just, I think that's a very binary issue. I don't think there's any use for that outside of the military. Um, I can understand why somebody would have a belief system that would make them against reproductive health care in abortion, but it's not my belief system. So that's, that's fine. And I guess I go into like clever mode because it's like, Oh, interesting that, you know, you're pro-life, but are you also a vegan and against the death penalty? And there are a few people that are, and I actually really respect those people. That's a totally different belief system, but they're consistent. But I find that most people are not. Um, I really struggle with, um, gay marriage, like not, I don't struggle with gay marriage at all. I struggle to enter any kind of debate about that because I think it's just insane that some people like don't want people to be able to love who they love and have equal rights. Um, election denial is something that I just feel like I'm living in different realities than other people on. So those are, those are some of the, the issues that really strike me as pretty crazy. Yeah. So I think you and I lean in the exact same direction in our belief systems, but maybe where we differ is that I think it is valuable to be curious and not that you don't think it's valuable to be curious, but I think there is some, some gain to be had by having conversations with people who have views that, that really don't sit well with me and just being curious about like, how did you, how did you get there? Because to me, this seems insulting. So, so explain to me why you feel that way and why you don't think it's insulting, right? I think that those kinds of curious, like in a respectful way, conversations that I might be, and I, I actually have had friends and colleagues who have views of the ones that you're describing, and we've had really interesting conversations and they feel connecting. They feel like they open up a dialogue that feels much more productive than to shut it down because I don't want to talk to somebody who doesn't agree with me or to engage in a debate, right? A debate is different, right? Because usually when you debate somebody, you end up holding even more tightly to the beliefs that you started out with. So what I'm talking about is actually not a debate. It's like, explain to me and and really being curious. And one of the things that really is important to me to, to explain about how I think about listening is that it's not just like ask the question and then be quiet as somebody answers, but to actively be open to and receptive to what somebody else thinks and actively be curious in an open way as to why they think it, right? People come from such different places and have such different belief systems. And if you even like look throughout history, there are people who have thought and said things that seem totally antithetical to any kind of humanity. And yet they were probably good, but they were just, you know, inside of a culture that taught them that people of different skin colors were, you know, fundamentally different or, or different religions were fundamentally different in the caste system. You know, if you sort of were born to this kind of family versus this kind of a family, you were fundamentally different. And my guess is there might've been very good people who were, um, taught these belief systems that they felt that they needed to abide by and then weren't able to be open to any uh, disconfirming evidence because the belief systems were so strong. And so this is something that I think is really challenging about the human brain is that when we believe something really strongly, it's hard to open up to anything that differs. And so we act actively have to sort of manually override it using curiosity, using humility, using this recognition that 
all of our brains do this. I mean, 10 years from now, we'll probably, you and I will probably be like, oh, we thought we were so progressive and liberal and open. And oh my gosh, we totally missed this thing that was right in front of our eyes, right under our noses, because that is how the human brain works. Yeah, I think that that's right. But I want to push back again. And um, the argument that, that, well, I guess I have two questions. The first is, or two areas of pushback, how do you not get into a debate when someone's the, the way that they see reality is distorted by that culture that they've grown up in. So if you're surrounded by people and sources of information that tell you that um, there was massive election fraud and votes were stolen and tossed into the water, well, what can you do other than be like, oh, like I, I actually have a very different fact base, so I guess we'll just agree to disagree on our different fact bases. Like, How does it end more productive than that? Well, first of all, I think we are all a product of cultures that distort our realities. It's like it's like saying somebody from England has an accent and I don't. Like, actually, I have an American accent and they have a British accent, but we all have accents, right? We're all distorted by our culture. So that's point one. And I think the second point is, is to just get curious. Oh, where do you get your information from? Because I draw my information from these kinds of sources. And look, we've come to such different places why do you trust your information? Like that seems so contradictory to like so much of what I'm reading and they might point out that they see bias in what I'm reading. And then we might get curious together. What are news sources that we could both agree have some objective fact associated with them? And that again, to me, seems like a more productive conversation. And I'm I'm sort of sounding Pollyanna-ish, I recognize, but I do think that if you sort of get into this really curious place of like, wow, how we're living in the same country, right? We're experiencing the exact same events, and yet we're coming to such different conclusions. Why? And the interesting part about that is I see this all the time in the couples therapy room. You get like a husband and a wife to sort of go super heteronormative in, and like there was some event that happened between them around conflict, around parenting, and they saw it totally different. They were both in the moment. They both had words. They both heard the words. And yet they came away with an entirely different interpretation. I think this happens all the time. And so to be curious about it and to say, you know, I drink my own water, you drink your water, and we're both influenced by by the water that we drink and we come to different conclusions. And, and can we find the overlap in our realities? Because right now we're experiencing pretty different realities. And yet we live in the same world and we, we want to navigate it together to some extent. A couple is different, but like in society, we also want to take care of our globe, to take care of our community. And if you look at, I mean, there, there's sort of interesting research from people like Jonathan Haidt who say that, you know, like we have different moral frameworks, but we all have some overlap in what we care about. Like one common example is like everybody, you know, Republican and liberal, um, from various parts of the world cares about vulnerable populations, very young people and very old people. Like that's a commonality. We all care about a sustainable world in different ways. We just have different methods of getting there. So can we find the overlap? Can we get curious about the differences in our realities? And can we agree that it is more useful to have constructive conversation that makes play- space for each person's reality in a respectful way, even when we disagree pretty vehemently? Yeah, I think that you are being a little Pollyanna. I think that you're also maybe just significantly wiser and more patient than me, um, which is also probably fair. 
And then the third thing is you asked, like, how do we get here? And there, I, I think the answer is, to be honest, like, follow the money. Um, attention economy incentives are for tribalism and rage. That's what gets clicks. And the more that you confuse someone's identity to being right, uh, the more they're going to come back to your web page, news site, whatever it is, to validate that identity. Um, so I, I think that that is, in many ways, the force that we're up against. Um, and it takes a lot of work to do the kind of listening that, that you are after. And some vulnerable populations would say, well, you know, it sucks enough that like I'm not accepted by 40% of the country. And now you want me to do the work of like teaching them to accept me simply because I love a man or I love a woman that, that that's a big ask. Um, but without that, I don't, I don't really understand how we go forward. So I think that while the internet is good for a lot of things, and this is not an original thought, I feel like Steve and I have said this multiple times, the internet, I think like the guise of quote unquote, bringing people together in community I think all that social media has done, at least, is tear people apart. I really do. And I shouldn't say that's all it's done, because we wouldn't be having this conversation if not for social media. I wouldn't have met Steve. But I think on balance, it has done more to tear people apart than bring people together. And I think that really just comes down to the incentives of the profit-driven companies that are underlying the discourse. Yeah, it's profit-driven. And and again, there's like a a wiring in the human brain where there's something so satisfying about reading something that is quote unquote right versus something that is quote unquote wrong and somebody who's sort of, and and it's fascinating and like a, you know, watching a train wreck that you can't take your eyes off to watch these vitriolic back and forths between people on, on Twitter or wherever. Um, And so there's something that really calls to our attention. And I do think that we have to be really wary of, spending too much time, spending too much energy on unproductive conversation. And this is my personal like mission. I think we need to do a better job in reaching out to people who we don't totally agree with and being curious about why, why they've arrived at positions that they've arrived at. I think we don't, it's so easy in our culture to just surround ourselves with people who we feel comfortable with and people whose belief sets are the same as ours. And I will say that part of why I feel this way is that I was raised by parents who are pretty politically different than me. And interestingly, so my parents are are very right-wing and I'm very left. And interestingly, my father was born in a socialist community, like, you know, basically, you know, Marxist. And he sort of made this big pivot when he came to America. So like, I've seen the transition, right? And it's like the same person adopting totally different beliefs. And, and I love that person. He, he passed away about four years ago. And so for me, I think to be able to see beyond somebody's belief, to see their humanity, it just, it just makes sense to me. And we can connect with people even when they don't agree with us. It is not as easy, but, and we don't have to do it all the time with everyone, right? And, and somebody who has been attacked is not responsible for fixing the world, but we can more collectively I think, do a better job in having these conversations. All right. So let's move from that to now actions. So we've talked about people that have different values or different belief systems. Now let's talk about when to draw boundaries with people whose actions are either like really provoking and make you a worse version of yourself and or 
cause legitimate harm. Um, so not the harm of, oh, you know, you think climate change is not real and I think climate change is real. And that's emotionally really challenging to live in a world with people who think so differently. But the harm of um, I'm going to litter all over your lawn. Yeah. And let's talk particularly when it's family members, because I know from listeners that a lot of people go through this in particularly now. And um, the common theme that I hear is one of two things. The first is it's not just that my parents or uncle or brother or sister um, votes for Donald Trump. It's that they're becoming Donald Trump and Tucker Carlson. So they're angry all the time. They're righteous. They're always the victim. Um, they bend reality to um, what they want to hear or see, not what is, not just out in the political world, but when they come over for dinner. Or on the other side, these lefties are so self-righteous and so smug, and they're always judging me. And God forbid I misstep in good faith and say the wrong thing. They think that I'm a Nazi. Where do you draw boundaries in those situations? Well, I think that there's a number of ways that you could do it. And it it depends a bit on the context, the nature of the relationship and the context or setting that you're in. So if you're like at Thanksgiving dinner, it's, you know, one thing versus if it's an acquaintance who you see here and there, it's another. Um, and of course, you know, if it's your parent, it's one thing versus if it's somebody that you're not, you know, having blood ties with, it's, it's totally another. So you know, when it comes to boundary setting, I think there's a couple of key tenets that are useful to remember. So one is it's always useful to support the other person's autonomy. So when you come in and you say, you can't talk about that, people don't like it, right? We don't like to have our autonomy taken away. So it's much more useful to say, hey, Uncle Frank, Thanksgiving dinners are often a little tense. I would like to set set an approach goal. So this is the second tenet. So set an approach goal versus an avoidance goal. So rather than I don't want to have conflict at the Thanksgiving dinner, I would like to have a more pleasant evening where everyone can feel like the family connection. Would you be on board with that? So now you're inviting Uncle Frank to have a say in setting the goal and in identifying some values that can help you foster a more connected, pleasant Thanksgiving evening. So you invite collaborative problem-solving, collaborative goal-setting. But what if Uncle Frank doesn't really want to do that? So then you have a, a choice, right, which is to set a boundary. And you can say, hey, I respect, right, going back to the autonomy tenet, I respect that that's not what you want to do, right? You want to have the freedom to talk about whatever you want to talk about. And I get that right? So this is sort of like the validation, right? You don't have to agree with it. Like, I don't agree with it, but I get it, right? You come from a valid place, but that isn't going to be comfortable for me. So I hope that you can appreciate that when I walk away, it's not because I don't care about you or about our family, but it's because for me, it gets so uncomfortable and feels harmful that I'm just not going to engage in it. And I'll come back when the conversation seems like it's calmed down. So you set the boundary and you can expect that Uncle Frank, if Uncle Frank really doesn't want to observe that boundary, that he's really not going to. And and that's okay. That needs to be okay because it is, right? You, you may not like it. You may not condone it, but it is what it is. You don't get to say what other people decide to do or not do. But the more that you respect 
Uncle Frank's autonomy to make his own choices and set your own boundary that is consistent with your values, the better you can tolerate that Thanksgiving dinner without totally getting estranged, which which for some people is where it lands. I mean, that's like the more extreme example. If everybody is consistently harming you, you can cut off ties. But to me, that's sort of the last resort option, especially when it's somebody who's who in relationship to them, you know, you're either blood ties or feel like a more long-term commitment. So, you know, trying to work on, again, supporting the other person's autonomy, inviting them in collaborative um, value uh, identification or, or goal setting, and then um, setting the boundary in a way that is honoring your values without burning the relationship out. Yeah. And I think that I once had, um, I once, well, a therapist once said that the time to exit a relationship, I want to make sure I get this right, is when being in the relationship is more painful than not being in the relationship. And um, I've really tried to use that as a guiding heuristic. Um, because again, I think that like there's a difference between Uncle Frank saying something, but then Uncle Frank lying or um, engaging in abusive behaviors where it might make sense. Like it might be more painful to have uncle Frank in your life than to say, you know what, this sucks. And I'm going to, every Thanksgiving, I'm going to be really sad that you're not there, but day to day, like me, my family, what have you is actually a lot safer. Yeah. I think drawing those kinds of boundaries makes all sorts of sense. And, but I think where I come to is that there's a lot more gray area in those kind of boundaries than we often think. It's not necessarily having Uncle Frank in your life versus not. It could be really setting a firm limit and just having a fairly superficial relationship with Uncle Frank, assuming that you want Uncle Fr- to set, to maintain some kind of contact with Uncle Frank, but that you in general want to stay very protected from him. And I think being able to do that and, and feel um, a sense of control over the boundaries that you set can be quite helpful in recognizing that Uncle Frank may be really harmful, but that, and kind of as your therapist was saying, like more painful to have in your life than not in your life, but deciding to sort of keep him a little bit in so that the ties aren't completely cut can be a choice that is available to you. Or, I mean, certainly you can completely cut the tie too, but I I think sometimes we think of it as like, Uncle Frank is either in my life or he's out of my life when really there's like a lot of gray between those two extremes that you can explore. Yeah. And I think it just gets hard for people um, when it's almost like they need to parent the older adults in their life. Because now what you're talking about your relationship with Uncle Frank is kind of like your relationship with a toddler in many ways. Like, you know, if you break the rules four times, then you're going in time out. You're going to be grounded. You're not going to come over for three days. Um, and that can feel kind of icky. And I think that that's actually right. I mean, maybe this sounds disrespectful, but I do think that for adult relationships where the other person can't have that kind of conversation where you say, you know, this isn't going well, can we modify how we do this? Some people Without immediately getting offended, right? Right, right. I mean, this is like the cliche thing about like the mother-in-law and it's not mine. My mother-in-law is wonderful, but like the minute that you bring something up, it's like, oh, well, because I'm not good enough for you or because I'm out to get you. So I guess that I'll never see you again. I might as well just fly back home. Exactly. Exactly. And 
I'm sure most listeners out there can think of somebody in their life who falls under this category of like, I can't have a productive conversation with that person. And so one book that I'll recommend really highly is a book by Lindsay Gibson called Adult Children of Emotionally Immature Parents. And I love it because this emotional immaturity really captures this idea of somebody who really can't have a flexible conversation, who can't think in a flexible way relationally. And that's that's really hard to navigate. And so she offers, I mean, the book in and of itself, if you've ever been around somebody emotionally mature, will make you feel seen and heard and understood. But also she provides a lot of tips and and they really do come down to like, you got to see this person as emotionally mature. They're not capable or willing, hard to tell which, but it's often that they're not capable of having that kind of a conversation that requires some cognitive flexibility, some emotional flexibility. And so you almost have to approach them as if they were a toddler, right? And it doesn't feel good, but the alternatives are cutting them out of your life or engaging in a totally unproductive conversation where you feel really harmed at the end of it. Yeah, that's a great book, by the way. I um, Ryan Holiday, who's um, a friend and a really good author, recommended that I read that book when I was going through some challenging family stuff. And um, I agree, I found it a phenomenal book. I actually, um, my... Uh, early July newsletter will feature her newest book, which is, um, I think, Disentangling from Emotionally Immature People, which is uh, even more um, just like on the ground strategy. So look for the newsletter um, and I'll share some of the tips that she offers in her, her writing. Yeah, it's a good time to shamelessly plug Yael's newsletter, Relational. We'll include it in the show notes. Um, if you're finding this interesting, the newsletter is twice a month and it's absolutely fantastic. So um What's the difference between an emotionally immature adult that you might want to disentangle from and someone with a personality disorder? And are these real differences in constructs or are these just terms that we use to point at similar things? Well, I have to say, in general, I'm sort of anti-labels, especially personality disorder labels, because I, I really think that they just end up pathologizing people. And to me, it's all about the function. Um, so Emotional immaturity, it, I think, gets captured in a lot of the personality disorders. That's sort of like, you know, one of the criteria is that people get really rigid in how they uh, in, engage interpersonally in various ways, like borderline personality disorder or um, dys dysthymic personality disorder or, um, you know, but again, it's it's sort of like you put somebody in a in a categorical box of a diagnosis. And I actually, in, I mean, it's sort of weird coming from a clinical psychologist, but I'm pretty weary of diagnostic labels in general from a mental health perspective, because I think if we over-identify with them, it really impacts how we see ourselves and also what we feel capable of. And I, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that too, because I know this is something that you've um, written about, right? Yeah, I wrote a piece for the New York Times about this. And I think that we see pretty similarly, I think that I probably am more um, sympathetic towards labels. And I think that labels are a great tool and they work until they get in the way. So I think that like kind of what we were talking about last week in psychological flexibility, you have to ask yourself, like, is this label working for me or not? So the personal example that I give is when I was first diagnosed with OCD and it was debilitating and my brain was broken and I had no idea what was going on, the label of OCD was really useful and really important. It made me feel like I wasn't just broken, but I had a syndrome or a disease or a disorder that many other people had. It led to a very particular treatment. It led to a specific dose of medication, a specific kind of therapy. 
And I could separate myself from OCD by being like, oh yeah, like that's the OCD. Or even I have OCD. Maybe a year into my recovery, I started realizing that I was putting too much of my identity in being a person with OCD and it started to limit me. And at that point, it was time to shed the label or make it a much smaller part of my identity. So I think that like insofar that labels or identity connectors lead you to behaviors and communities that support and help you, then they're very useful. I think that most of these times, these things work and then eventually they get in the way because they start to limit you. Um, it's like the example of um, neurodivergent. I think that like that's another one of these kind of controversial terms because some say, well, you can follow that all the way down and everyone's neurodivergent. And others say, well, that's a slap in the face to someone with like autism spectrum disorder. And I think the answer is like, if that label is enlarging your world and helping you, you should use it. And if it's narrowing and diminishing your world, you should shut it or minimize it. And often for the same person, it's going to do both those things in different contexts at different times. Sorry, that was a long answer, but that's how I think about labels. Yeah. And I, I, I actually really do agree with you. Maybe the difference in how we see it is that I think it becomes a lot more limiting more quickly than people realize. So if you're diagnosed with depression, I think it is normalizing and it leads to treatment. And certainly as a provider, it, it's a useful communication tool. Certainly as a researcher, it's an essential tool because it's how we sort of filter in like who's going to be a part of the study. So it's not that it doesn't have utility. I just think that the limits of utility are much sooner than people recognize because if I have depression, people often think it's it's like some now it's like a core feature of who they are and i think it's a small part of who you are that that you can learn to deal with you know just like you know sometimes i'm I like to run, but I don't always like to run, right? So I love kids, but sometimes I want to be without them. You know, sometimes I get into a depressed mood, but it's not its not even a huge part of who I am. It's just a part of who I am. And sometimes it looms larger, right, When in certain phases of my life, and sometimes it looms smaller. But because the way that we see mental health is, and that we see diagnostic criteria inside of mental health as being so, such a huge part of how people cope and and the flaws in how they cope, I think it's hard to sort of contextualize and sort of make it a smaller part of you than it actually is. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If you think that you're very vulnerable to moods, then every time you see a, a shift in your mood, you start to think, oh, here it comes again, right? Now I'm going down the hill into, you know, the depressive funk that's going to last forever. And what we know is this expectation effect can really take hold and can really create this cycle of how we end up experiencing the next couple weeks or months. Yeah, I think that um, the best way to think about this is I'm experiencing depression or I'm experiencing anxiety or I'm experiencing an obsession versus I have depression or I have anxiety or I have OCD. Um, or I am a depressed person. Yeah, I, I mean, I would argue that that's probably the the least productive way to think about it. Um, however, it's obviously really nuanced and complex because a part of the disease of depression distorts one's view to think that they are a depressed person. So it's like this really um, bi-directional thing where identifying as a depressed person is maybe likely to extend to depression, but depression also leads one to identify as a depressed person. Um, so I think that, you know, where we can definitely agree is these things have to be handled with care and, um, it's really a case of it depends. 
Um, but yeah, I think the, the less that we can identify with these things, the more that we can think about them as experiences and, but also not, um, romanticize them, but not say like, Oh, you know, you're just sad. Everyone experiences depression. Like eh, sometimes depression requires like a high dose SSRI and then some. Yeah. And one of the, just to dovetail on some of the things that you can say to yourself, because one of the things that I think is really useful to say when you are experiencing an episode of depression or anxiety or, or what have you is like, what is this symptom trying to tell me? Like, what do I need? What is it trying to inform me? It's like a pain in your leg, except it's psychiatric, right? But often there's a lot of important information, which is either I need to get care, I need treatment, or I need a break, right? I've been doing too much for too long, or this really, right, coming back to the relational sphere, this relationship is really toxic and I'm finding myself consistently feeling just terrible about myself whenever I engage with this person. So see it as, it actually can have value. It is usually an indicator of something that's unhealthy. But sometimes it's not you. Sometimes it's the context and sometimes it is you. And sometimes you need to get support with that. So asking yourself what information it's giving you in terms of what you need or what you need to do or what supports you need to reach out for. Yeah, that's right. Uh, You know, to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And my hammer in this is really more anxiety disorders and OCD, where like there might be secondary depression. So to that, I would ask you, isn't it also true that sometimes an intrusive thought just means nothing? And like the worst thing to do is try to ask yourself like what this means. And instead it's like, Oh, like my brain just, you know, threw one out from left field and going to let that one go over the fence and not think about it. Yeah. So I still think that you can ask that question, but having what you just said in mind is quite helpful. Like, you know, what information does this thought have for me can be, the answer might be nothing at all. Like I, I tend to be a pretty moody person. I get anxious and depressed. I have all of it. And for me, a lot of the time, the thoughts are just not at all useful. Like I'm really socially anxious. I constantly think people are evaluating me every time I do a podcast. I like don't sleep all that night. And the, those thoughts and feelings are just kind of along for the ride. And I've learned to ask myself, like, is there anything that can be learned? Like, do I want to try to do something different the next time I'm on a podcast or talking to Brad because I'm so intimidated by him? And most of the time it's like, no, those are just thoughts. They come up, they feel terribly uncomfortable. There's nothing productive that comes of it. Let me put my attention somewhere else. And sometimes it's really, really hard to do. And so it's just a tough night and I get through it to the other side. I mean, the other thing that's really helpful to remember is that most intense thoughts and feelings, they come, they suck, and then they go. Yeah. The the way that my therapist, Brooke, when I was really in the thick of OCD, would talk about this. Um, and it's easy now to say, having been on the other side of it for a few years and learned these skills but there's like a certain texture to an anxious thought or an obsessional thought that you can kind of start to feel out. And if you can feel that texture, it's kind of like a finger trap where the worst thing that you can do is like put one finger in and then it gets stuck. And the best thing that you can do is like walk off the battlefield um, and just let it be there and have the shitty night, but don't freak out that you're having the shitty night. Don't try to solve the problem. Don't try to figure out what it means just like let the mosquito bite be there without itching it. And then eventually it subsides. And intellectually, this sounds very easy. When you're experiencing eight, nine, 10 out of 10 anxiety, it is very hard. Yeah. A hundred percent. Well, I'll say just like what I used to do when I would feel anxious is like, and be so grateful, Brad, that I have overcome it in, in the way, in my responses, not in terms of feeling it. Like I always feel it, but I used to like do a lot of reassurance seeking. Like I would email if it, if I were feeling this way, I would email you, Brad, and 
Was it okay? Did I sound dumb? What, what, you know, what do you think the viewers will think? Should we redo it? And it would like annoy people. And so I realized that following the anxiety was like scratching the mosquito bite. It just got more and more itchy. Everyone was annoyed. Everyone else was itching and pissed at me about it. And so what I really needed to do is just like live with it and let it, let it sort of run its course and come to the other side. Most of the time, I mean, sometimes the anxiety is informative, like, Ooh, I really should have prepped more. Okay. Next time I'll prep more. Um, or I should have gotten a better night's sleep or eaten a meal before I did the podcast. Like sometimes there's valuable information about how I did. And often there's not. Love it. Um, all right. So I'm really glad that we got to have this conversation in the last couple of minutes and this conversation being around anxiety, depression, not just in relationships, but, um, how might you be wrong on this? So I'm going to like do my best to paint you in very broad strokes, which is so anti me, but in the spirit of time, I think most would say anyone that's listening is going to think you're extremely thoughtful, smart, considerate, that you are a real expert on this. I think some people would say you are in the camp that says like, engage more, give people the benefit of the doubt, have the icky conversation. If you can tolerate it, even if it's on something as fundamental to your identity as sexuality, let's say, not always, you're very clear about that. I don't want to put any words in your mouth, but you lean towards that. And I think that's very noble and there's no right answers or wrong answers, right? These are just really tricky, nuanced situations. In what situations or when do you think you might be wrong? Well, this kind of goes back to something we already talked about. But if you're engaging with somebody who is just not able to have a productive conversation with you in terms of like, they're just going to kind of come at you and put you down and say vile things and throw litter on your front yard. I do think that, you know, at some point, it is useful to say, hmm, I don't think I'm, you know, we're not connecting in any way. But I don't think that necessarily needs to be the end of it. You can get curious, like, hey, you know, that one didn't go well. Would you want to try again about a different topic? Like, could we connect over something that isn't about my sexual orientation or my marital choices or my reproductive health? And can we sort of develop a relationship? If, again, if it is a value to you, to have that relationship. And if it's just somebody that you met at a party, it probably isn't going to be that worth it. But if it's your uncle Frank and you really have treasured memories of growing up with uncle Frank and you want to find a way to connect, you can try to resolve the issues that you disagree about. You can try to have a relationship about other things and create humanity and connection between the two of you. Or you can decide you know what, I'm going to have a super superficial relationship. And every time Uncle Frank brings up the conversation and and tries to put out the bait, I'm just going to walk away because I don't want to take the bait, but I want to have Uncle Frank in my life. Or you can decide Uncle Frank probably should not be a part of my life. It is simply too toxic for me. So again, there's like multiple options. And I think the in direct response to your question, I think you got to feel it out. Like, what's it worth to you? What have you tried? What are you willing to try? And if you've tried a whole bunch of things, it is simply too painful. It is simply too toxic. You can't sort of get around the thing and figure out a way to connect with Uncle Frank. Then maybe it is a time to say, you know, I think I need to take a break from Uncle Frank. The thing I would say about that, though, is if you cut it off you can always reconnect. Like that doesn't have to not be an option for the future. 
All right, that seems like a great place to end. Um, Yael Shamrun, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, listeners, if you enjoyed the conversation, please share it. Um, you can also subscribe if you aren't already to make sure that you never miss an episode of the Growth Equation podcast. And if you found this conversation interesting, can't imagine that you didn't, you should absolutely sign up for Yael's newsletter, Relational. I subscribe, Steve subscribes, Chris subscribes. We tell our partners to subscribe. So um, check that out in the show notes. And with that, we'll be back next week. 